Open your Bibles to Luke 4. So this is one of my very favorite passages of Scripture. I know I've said that several times, but it really is. It presents this gripping, captivating uh, view of Jesus. And at once, it's incredibly comforting, and it's also piercingly convicting. In addition, it depicts this compelling vision of a life um, worthy to give yourselves to, worthy of us as a church to give ourselves to. And I first really dug into this text when I was graduating from seminary and I had to do a thesis to, to graduate and I really overdid it. And I showed a lot of inexperience. I wrote 228 pages on this text, so buckle up. <laughs> and, but I, I promise that I mean, I put my advisor through it. It's, um, it, was very, it was mistreatment all the way. And I just blame my accounting background for thinking I had to research everything to the minutia. But, but don't worry, I've learned a little bit since then. So the reason I chose this text is, back then to do my thesis was because we were moving to Peru. We were gonna plant churches, as you know, and train pastors. And Peru was, if you recall, you who are of age, um, if you recall that the shining path had been operating in Peru, the Sendero Luminoso, and it was a Mayoist terrorist organization, mainly during the 80s. It caused just havoc in the country, a lot of tragic, tragic things. They were fed up with the grinding poverty of that nation, the disparity, social and economic between rich and poor, and so they gave themselves to violent means. They wanted to establish a communist state. And it was this nightmarish time for many caught between the groups. And the church, of course, decried that violence and that intimidation, uh, yet the church in its broadest sense was also sympathetic to the concerns, and part of that rightly so, is that they felt deeply the debilitating poverty and social marginalization of many. They felt that. On the other hand, there was this brand of theology that had been sweeping through Latin America and other parts of the world, and it was exerting a lot of influence on the church. It was a movement that combined the Bible and Marxist ideology. It looked at scripture through the lens of what they said, the preferential option for the poor. It de-emphasized spiritual salvation in view of material, physical, social salvation. It favored Marxism as the means to accomplish it. And so Luke 4, 16 through 30 was one of their Bible texts. And so my thesis was to study it in depth, to be prepared for what I was heading into, we were heading into, and to really assess it, assess what God was saying through it, try to understand and uh, the concerns of liberation theology, and then also to answer them according to the text. So we, we can't do all that today, we won't. My goal is to preach Christ from this text. And according to this text, we're gonna look at who, who the text presents Jesus to be, uh, what did he come to do? And how are you to respond to that? How are we as a church to respond to that? And through these in, in questions, we encounter this picture of Jesus that he is just rich in mercy and strength towards us in our need. And he purposes that all aspects of this devastating broken world be healed. He came for that 
far as the curse is found, as the hymn says. So let's read Luke 4, begin reading at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a widow, a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers, flowers fade. This word, good word, endures forever. Let's pray this little prayer of illumination together. Holy Spirit, please glorify Jesus by taking what is his and making it known to us in a deep and abiding way, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So at the start, we need to appreciate just how important uh, Jesus' sermon here is to Luke. It's incredibly significant for Luke. So Luke's just recorded Jesus' preparation. We've looked at that, his baptism, genealogy, and the temptations where he's shown to be God's son and God's faithful son. And so he's the right man to be the redeemer. And now Jesus begins his public ministry. So verses 14 and 15 say, he returned to Galilee And so what we learn is that Jesus engaged in this early Galilean ministry and then a Judean ministry. It might have taken up to a year. 
He's gone all over, and now he's coming back. He's coming back into Galilee. And so Luke stresses this powerful preaching ministry that Jesus has engaged in. It's been so moving and effective that he gets famous from it. He's incredibly popular. It's in the honeymoon stage of his ministry. And people are talking about him. He preaches differently with this authority and this grace that they have not heard. And so he comes to Nazareth in Galilee, which is his hometown. It's where he grew up. I mean, it wasn't a big place during this time. The population was maybe 400 up to about 1,600, 2,000. I mean, it's a small town. They, they know him. They knew him. They knew his family. They knew him as the carpenter. You know, he fixed things for people. He knew his father. And the synagogue attendees especially knew him and his family. And so on a Sabbath, Jesus goes to the local synagogue and it says, as was his custom, meaning during this year of ministry, he's been going to synagogues and preaching, but it may also indicate that, you know, this is his synagogue. This is where he grew up, just like he did every week growing up, as was his custom, he goes to his home church. And so Matthew and Mark also record this important event, yet it's something very striking. It's, it's a point we, we really need to pay attention to is that before they record this event, they record a whole lot of other things. They record what happens in this little summary statement, verses 14 and 15. So Matthew records it in chapter 13, Mark in chapter 6. They place it in chronological order. However, Luke treats it differently. He gives us that little summary statement and then he dispenses with all that, actually puts all that after this because he's not concerned with the chronology. His point is different. What he does is move this sermon as the first thing he speaks of in Jesus' public ministry and makes this sermon Jesus' inaugural address, his programmatic sermon to portray who he is, why he's come, and what we're to do about it and think about it. I mean, this gives shape to everything. It outlines and it gives shape to Jesus' whole ministry. It's, it's kind of Jesus' state of the union address. It's, it's why the Son of God was made flesh and entered the world. And so it introduces the Gospel of Luke, but not only the Gospel of Luke, also Acts, because they hang together. And so Luke will flesh out this sermon. So we don't have to say everything today because we're gonna be fleshing it out as we go along. It's the stirring portrait of Jesus. He moves towards us, towards this world, this way, and that's what Luke wants you to really like take to heart. It's like Jesus saying, why did I come? Let me preach this sermon to you. So the synagogue leaders would ask notable visitors to read and teach, and so given Jesus's influence, they ask him, but probably also curiosity to see what their hometown, homegrown product, what he's gonna say to them. So the leader gives him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus takes it and he unrolls it. 
Like, you don't have chapter numbers. He unrolls it. He knows it that well. He finds the place where it's written. He purposefully chooses this text to present himself to his home crowd. He selects Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2, but he leaves out a companion clause. You see, he closes his quotation with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The companion clause is, in a day of vengeance for our God. And that's important because Jesus is saying, yeah, God's judgment is coming, but I'm here to express God's grace to sinners and sufferers. My ministry is gonna be about grace. And he inserts a phrase from Isaiah 58, six, that we read in our conviction of the gospel section. That little phrase that says, to let the oppressed go free, he inserts it here. The reason is, the same word is used twice if you do that. You got liberty in our translation or release used twice. He's pressing that point on people. I've come for release, for liberty. So three points, who is Jesus here? Well, how does Jesus identify himself? Well, Jesus looks at them and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Powerful. And so this comes right after his baptism. Remember, his baptism, the spirit descends on him bodily like a dove. He's anointed by the descent of the spirit upon him who commissions him and equips him with everything he needs to do this amazingly difficult mission that God has charged him to do and he is accepted to do. And so as he quotes that passage, he's, he's saying Isaiah 61 one anticipated my own spirit anointing as the redeemer. It talked about me. That mysterious, like marvelous person, figure of Isaiah 61, we, I'm that guy. And he underscores this after his sermon when he says to the crowd, he goes, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That elevated individual is me. And so you recall that Isaiah speaks of that person in a host of vivid ways. You know Isaiah. And this person that, like Isaiah the prophet aches will come. And it's utterly crucial for the salvation of God's people. And so Isaiah 11:2 describes this Messiah in these terms, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It goes on to say this king would be endowed with the spirit, with the purpose of judging the poor and bringing peace to the world. And not only is he a king, but he's David's greater son. Isaiah 9 would say, for us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I mean, who does that? And so beyond comprehension, this Messiah will not only be a man bringing peace to the world, but he's ultimately God. God's got to do it. And so another very close background to what Jesus is saying to his hometown is the servant of the Lord passages in Isaiah. And you cherish those a lot. And so Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so this servant is Israel as she should have been, but failed. So the true servant had to come. So what is he going to be like? Well, he's going to have a kingly role here. He's going to be a servant that's going to obey God as he ought in the place of the people, bringing forth justice, righting wrongs, caring for the needy, creating a kingdom of righteousness and shalom. Well, then you got Isaiah 50 verse 4 that's similar. But there the servant is depicted in a prophetic role. He says, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me, awakens my heart, my ear to hear as those who are taught. He's the prophet who speaks to weary people. But the servant who has to fulfill this role and be faithful to it is also a priestly figure. And so Isaiah 53, 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds you were healed. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. The king has to rescue us from the power of our enemy the prophet has to speak good news to people who don't know it. The priest has to offer himself in the place of sinners to be the perfect sacrifice for us. But he can't just be a man. God himself is gonna do this. And so Jesus is saying all of this before his hometown crowd, and Luke gives us that portrait to kick off the whole of Luke Acts. That's who's here among us. So what did he come to do? What does Jesus come to do if that's who he is? So again, Luke 4, 18 and 19 quote Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and Isaiah 58, 6. They say the Lord sent Jesus, the Messiah, the servant, the prophet, priest and king, the God-man, into this broken and fallen and sinful world to do four things. Four things highlighted by the four infinitival phrases. To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you sit under that and you say, how merciful is God? And I need that kind of savior. What a, I mean, a wonderful description. That's, that's Jesus's purpose statement to you. That's why he came. So what mercy 
And do you find yourself in need of that? And just look, he directs his saving mission to poor people, to captives, to the blind, and to the oppressed. That's who he comes for. And so we ask, are these spiritual or physical conditions? Does he come to rescue the spiritually poor, captive, blind, and oppressed, or the physically poor, captive, blind, and oppressed? But we immediately know that it's both. It's both. There's a heart to Jesus' mission, which is always your spiritual need, because that's the greatest need you have. And then there's a whole of Jesus' mission, W-H-O-L-E, the whole, the effects of Jesus' mission, that he heals all things. His goal is to heal all things. And so you know how Luke is going to flesh this out for us in the gospel. And we're going to see Jesus' special interest in poor people physically, materially, socially poor. He raises their status. He defends them. He helps provide for them. We're going to see how he feeds hungry people. We're going to see how he casts out demons of possessed people. He's going to set people free from sickness. He's going to give sight to blind people. We're going to watch him do that. And behind this, we're going to see that Isaiah hoped for this. You see, after Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Isaiah goes on to speak of he's going to make those who mourn, he's going to comfort them. And those who mourn are these people, they will build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many houses. I mean, Isaiah is speaking of what transpired in Israel, that they were obliterated by the Babylonians. These people are crushed, and they're suffering, devastated, carried off into exile. They are, they are the poor, they are captive, they view their exile as a blindness, they go into darkness, and they are oppressed, and he comes for them in their desperate need. Yet throughout Isaiah, and you know this, how stirring it is, that even though their problems are so bad and their captivity has been so hard, that God looks at his people and says, your worst problem is your heart, it's your sin. And he kicks off Isaiah saying, look, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they're pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Or in chapter 40, when he really kicks off God's restoration, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her, her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. And then we reach really the high point with the servant of the Lord saying, but he was pierced for their transgressions. We know that's the core of our need and their need. And not just Israel's. You see, Isaiah, what's one of the beautiful characteristics of Isaiah is that in a new and greater way, God demonstrates a concern not just for his people, but for the world. And so everything's broadening out. 
And so for example, the servant is gonna, he says this about him. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And over and over again, that God's concern as he looks towards the Redeemer coming expands to all the nations. And so Jesus embodies this, this whole disposition when he comes. He carries it into his mission. He goes after the physically, materially, socially poor, captive, blind, oppressed of the world because that's just what grace does. That's just God's nature of mercy to go low, to gravitate towards pain and suffering and need. Grace just does that. The incarnation is the exemplification of that when Jesus keeps going down. And so Jesus goes into need, all the fallout from our fallen world. Furthermore, Jesus directs his attention to the physically, materially, socially poor because they know they need help. And throughout the gospel, we see this played out. They're not the self-satisfied or self-sufficient ones that just think they got it together. He goes to them because they're looking for help. They desire him to come to them, and he directs his attention to them. But in all this, Jesus makes clear that your primary need and your primary suffering is always your sin. And this is underscored so powerfully in two bookends of Luke where Jesus says in 531, and Jesus answered, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then he closes out his earthly ministry by looking at Zacchaeus and saying, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. The sin is our deepest need. And that's why the goal of all the gospels is the cross of Christ where Jesus becomes poor in sin, captive to our guilt, oppressed by the devil in the blindness of the darkness of God's judgment, and he takes your place in it to undo it for you. We also see this displayed in the way our text speaks of captives and the oppressed. I just want you to see real quickly that word liberty. It's used twice, it's in 61.1 and 58.6. It's also translated release, and behind that is Leviticus 25. And Leviticus 25 is a tremendous passage, it's the Jubilee year passage. And so the Jubilee was this intensified Sabbath year. So every seven years, three things happened. Slaves were freed, debts were canceled, land, was left fallow for gleaners, but in the 50th year, following seven sabbatical years, so the 50th year, an additional law applied, all the land lost for any reason was returned to its original owner. It didn't matter how you lost it. Something happened to you or you just weren't taking care of it. It meant that really there were no real land sales in Israel. There were lease years. It kept Israel from having a permanent, poverty-stricken underclass. 
And so Isaiah 61 refers to this year by calling it the year of the Lord's favor. That's how they called it. Isaiah 58 calls it the day acceptable to God. God showed his abundant concern for the poor in this year. The issue is that sadly, it probably wasn't actually followed in Israel, at least very consistently. It's hard to follow that law. In the prophets, it became a symbol of the age of Messiah. So when Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down and, and explains the significance of the text, he looks towards them and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your healing. He's saying, I'm announcing the Jubilee year with my presence and my ministry among you. What it faintly anticipated, I'm bringing to pass. This is a Jubilee gospel. I spoke with a lady last night at Tristan's wedding and I was thinking through my text today, and it's hard for me to preach on this because I think as you can tell, I, I want to say too much. And she just looked at this text and said, that's the Jubilee gospel. And I need a God who releases me from all that miserable, messed up thinking of mine and all those habit patterns of mine and releases me from that. And you have that here, and that's the jubilee gospel that Jesus announces. Well, what does it entail? Well, interestingly enough, throughout Luke, that same word for liberty or release, the only other times in Luke it's used, it's used for forgiveness of sins. And so you imagine yourself and put yourself there. You've lost it all, and that's what sin does to us. We lose it all dehumanizing, we go into darkness, we go into the pit. And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm restoring it all. I'm wiping your slate clean. If you know how big forgiveness is, imagine being a person that just had no land, no property, nothing, and then received it all back. Ultimately, Jesus is talking about his cross and his resurrection. When Jesus rises from the dead, he's returning you your land and your place and where you belong. You can see Paul behind this, can't you? Or later. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And that God has justified you and he sanctifies you. That is a jubilee setting free. All right, so how do we respond to this? Real quick. So Jesus realized the crowd just doesn't quite know what to do with him. Their eyes are fixed on him, they're glued to him. Nobody's moving, you can hear a pin drop. On the one hand, they marvel at his gracious words, incredible words, but on the other hand, they go, like, he's Joseph's son. Like, who does he think he is? And so Jesus quotes this proverb saying, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, and he's calling them to trust in him, but they're really not. They, they want a miraculous sign or for him to show them special favor given that it's his hometown, but he's not gonna to respond to some skeptical unbelief this way. Instead, he explains further why he's here. Like he, he explains his use of the text more. 
And so he says, look, in Elijah's day, there are many needy widows in Israel, yet God sent him to a widow outside of Israel, to a Gentile widow in Zarephath. And in Elisha's day, there were many lepers in Israel, yet God sent him to a leper outside of Israel, to Naaman the Syrian. And he's saying two things with this, what they understand. He goes, first, God was judging his people's unbelief by sending his prophets to the other nations. Like they were missing it. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm here to preach God's grace to you. Don't be unbelieving and miss out. Which is always something we need to pay attention to. Second, Jesus is saying, God always had a heart for the nations, the lost of the world. It never was restricted to you. It doesn't matter your heritage and your ethnicity. God's grace is for the world. And these two themes get repeated throughout Luke Acts. We're gonna see that. But this is too much for his hometown. Their unbelief and their pride just roil up. They're filled with wrath. They take Jesus to the edge of a cliff and wanna throw him off of it. Like they knew him his whole life and they wanna throw him off the cliff. Because he has rattled some idolatry. But he exerts his power, walks right through their midst, and walks away. What does this say to us? So much. Beware your, your unbelief and your pride. We have to. When Jesus doesn't fit our expectations, or when we think we're the special few that he came for, realize that you are poor captive, blind, and oppressed by nature. You're desperate for this savior. Put your faith in Jesus for salvation and then cultivate Jesus's heart for sinners and sufferers. His project is global until the new heavens and the new earth but, but we can't do the things Jesus did. We see Acts 1.1 is real interesting. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I told you what Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication is, Jesus continues to do and to teach through his spirit-filled body, the church. And so this is our mission statement. We can say, as a body, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me, to proclaim release to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set forth the oppressed in release, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in this world that needs it. And so we elevate the word because our primary need is sin and forgiveness and justification. At the same time, we bend grace outward in works of service and mercy because that's just what grace does. And so we're involved in a host of different things as a church. And we keep wanting to press into those because that's part of Jesus's mission through the church until that great and final day when he returns in glory and there will be no mourning and crying or pain the old orders passed away. But even now, you and I have this amazing mission as a body, a local church, to express something of Jesus' heart 
to take that gospel deeper into the brokenness in our lives and then to show that grace to others as we, as we exemplify his mercy in the needs in our land and our community. That's something we can give our hearts to and our lives to. And that's a full and complete savior. Amen. Let's stand.